How are you guys doing? Hey, before I go any further, check this out. Hey, come on, we got to do it again. Look at this. And we didn't eat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, staff at E3, and you too could join the... Uh, the yes, yes, you can be brainwashed. Um, hey, uh, just a brief note before, before, um, before I, I talk anymore. Uh, Mark's back next week here. So um, um, be ready to welcome him. Uh, at the same time, don't overwhelm him. Hey, Mark, glad you're back, blah, 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 blah. Just to know that he's going to be getting acclimated for a couple weeks. I think he gets into town Wednesday. And, uh, but he'll be back teaching on Sunday. And we're really uh, excited and, and kind of anxious to hear what God has been doing in his life. I know, I know he's been talking to various members of, of E3 while he's been gone, but we're, we're excited to get him back. Um, so we've been spending, we've been spending a, a few weeks now in, in the book of Philippians. And, oh, wait a minute, hold on. Oh, sorry. I, I just saw Inception last night. And so like every month, every, like I pause and I'm just like... Oh, wait a minute, I just figured something else out. So uh, that has nothing to do with anything, except that it's a really, really awesome movie, and, and, and you should go, go see it. It's, it's really significant. And if I get dreamy-eyed again like that, it's just because, like, oh, wait, yes, there it was again. Um, okay, switch. Now, we've been spending a couple weeks in the book of Philippians, and uh, it's, it's our hope and our prayer that you guys are kind of journeying through the text with us because it's rich and it's meaningful and, and it is uh, devastating in a really good way. Like there's, certain, there's some times I think in life where we need our lives to be messed up and wrecked a little bit. And I think this letter uh, is one of the methods for wrecking people's lives that, that I would heartily endorse. So um, we're going to spend some time today talking through uh, sort of the last part of chapter one and, and into chapter two. But before I, I do that, I want to talk about I want to talk about time. I want to talk about a length of time. Specifically, I want to talk about a decade. I want to talk about ten years. Ten years is a, is a lot of time, and 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 incredible things can happen in the span. Of 10 years. Lives can be utterly different. People can be utterly different. Um, but 10 years is, is really significant when you're talking about learning something. Because people who have studied this would tell you that 10 years is significant because that's how long it takes for a person to spend 10,000 hours of time learning a craft, or a discipline. That's a lot of hours. But if you really pour yourself into it, if you have your life set up in a way that you have the hours to spend, in 10 years, you can spend 10,000 hours learning a craft. And that is significant because these people who have studied these, this, these types of, uh, well, actually, they just studied success, would tell you that something significant happens at 10,000 hours. That there is a certain magical number of hours that you can spend learning something, at which point you essentially master it. And that number is 10,000 hours. And they've looked at people who've done this. For instance, they would say uh, that uh, Mozart 
spent 10 years learning to compose. From the time he was a child to his first work of, of music that would be considered in any form or fashion good. Because it's sometimes we forget that Mozart wrote trash. But a lot of his early pieces, musicologists look at and they're like, it's not that good. It took him 10 years from beginning to compose to his first work of music that would be considered good. And then another 10 years after that, before he hit the sweet spot of his years and he was, he was turning out, you know, um, Klein and Knox music or, or you know, the, the operas that he wrote. Bobby Fischer, chess master, chess champion, 10 years to develop that skill. Bill Gates, uh, probably less than 10 years, but more than 10,000 hours he spent learning to program computers. The Beatles, 10 years, 10,000 hours of playing together. I was just, uh, we were just talking over, uh, over there in the sort of entryway that uh, they, they totaled up the number of gigs, the number of times the Beatles played before they hit the United States in 1964. They played 1,200 gigs together. And 10 years was the amount of time, basically from the time they started the band until Sgt. Pepper's, until the White Album, generally considered to be the, the ultimate works of, of, or expressions of who the Beatles were as a band. 10 years, 10,000 hours. Uh, I've got my own sort of 10,000 hour story. This is one of my guitars. And for those of you who may not know this, I actually do do this thing normally, this music thing, but haven't for a while. Um, but this is one of my guitars, and um, I started playing guitar when I was 15 years old. Had sort of a revelatory moment where I was just like home doing you know, nothing productive, which is what most 15-year-old boys do in the summertime watching TV, saw a guy playing guitar, and it was one of those moments, I knew at that moment, that is what I'm going to do. That is what I'm going to kind of pour my life into. So, I instantly began spending hours a day in my room, learning scales, learning songs, spending hour after hour in practice. Now, in my case, um, it really wasn't 10 years. Uh, it was a bit longer for me to reach my 10,000-hour mark. But in all humility, I would say that I, I remember when I crossed it. It was like a span of about a year or two, probably in my early 30s or mid-30s, when all of a sudden something fundamentally shifted. And for all intents and purposes, from, for, from my perspective, I mastered that instrument. Now, I didn't become like, you know, wildly successful, but all of a sudden, in the span of about two or three years, that piece of wood and steel became as natural for me to play as walking across a room. And I could make that thing, uh, for my purposes, express what was in here or what was in here. It would respond the way I wanted it to respond. It would do what I wanted it to do. For my purposes, I mastered it. That was probably my 10,000-hour mark. 
Now, what does this have to do with the book of Philippians? This is not your best life now. This is not time for me to tell you that God wants to give you a Cadillac and all you gotta do is spend your 10,000 hours and you're gonna be you know, wildly successful on this earth. This is not what this is about. The point of all this, first of all, is that when you know the goal, when you know where you are headed, there is almost always a way to accomplish it. You have to have the time to put 10,000 hours in. Don't get me wrong. And you have to have some baseline passion or ability. But genius or mastery doesn't come at just like an angel's touch. Bam, 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 bam. It's not random. It comes with hard, hard work. And the reason we spend a little time on success is that when Paul is writing the letter to the Philippians, he has a point in mind for them. Paul has a goal in mind for the Philippians. And he unfolds it throughout the letter. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we set it up that Paul is going to talk a lot about unity, about koinonia, being sort of a partner, a full partner in the gospel together. Paul's going to talk about what it means to be steadfast and, and, and uh, faithful in the midst of persecution. And Paul's going to talk about what it means to be a distinct community, different from the world around him. So I want to suggest to you this morning that Paul is writing to give the Philippians a goal, and that's what it is. Here is the goal. Paul wants results out of the Philippians, the same way I wanted results out of this guitar, the same way Bill Gates wanted results when he started programming computers. But the question is, how? How will you accomplish it? What is the method? What is the way that you're going to accomplish this goal? Is it going to be, you know, sitting somewhere for 10,000 hours of practice, of being a community? Um, Who knows? But I think Paul unfolds that in the stuff that we're going to talk about today. Paul gives us the goal. The key question is, how does he expect us to accomplish the goal? So um, I'm going to say a word of prayer, and if you guys would bow your heads and join me, we'll, we'll turn to the text. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for every soul, every person in this room right now. We, we, we think of the, the friends and the loved ones who are elsewhere, God, and we thank you for them as well. Lord, I pray that you would clear the table, clear the slate of our minds and our hearts, God, and would you write on them today, uh, this morning, what you would have for us. May we sit in, um, in a humble attitude before you and before your word, God, and ask you to teach us. God, we take on the, 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 the appearance of being students and ask you to to come and illuminate your word for us. And all God's people said, amen. Well, Paul spends uh, basically the entire first chapter of the book of Philippians talking about himself. And you really see this if you just skim the first chapter. It's I, 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 me, 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 me. He's telling them, this is what's going on with me. Here's what's going on in my life. Here's what's important to me. Here's what I'm struggling with. And then towards the end of the first chapter, he begins to transition very subtly in a manner of just a few sentences. 
And he spends most of the second chapter or the end of the first chapter talking about the Philippians. Enough about me. Now we're going to talk about you. You, 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 you. Your faith, your joy, your community together. And he does this in a really, really interesting way. The entire piece of scripture that we're going to look at this morning is one structured argument. And it's a literary device that Paul uses that was extremely common in ancient literature. It's called a a chiasmus or a chiastic argument. And what this means is that Paul is structuring his arguments in a, a way that you could diagram them. And it takes its name from the fact that it resembles the letter X or the Greek letter chi or chi if you're using the ancient Greek. And the way this device would work was that you would read it sort of from left to right, top to bottom. And the arguments would reappear on the axes. So in other words, um, if you're familiar with like diagramming songs or something, you would say this goes A, B, B, A. So the writer would introduce an argument. Then he would introduce a second argument. Then down at the bottom, that argument would repeat. And then at the very last, the first argument would repeat. So it's symmetrical, right? In the heart of it all, Paul writes um, a sort of a C-section that is explosive, rich, dynamic, and amazing, and changes the whole game. But this is kind of the framework that we're, we're dealing with this morning. And uh, parts of Exodus are written this way. Parts of Leviticus are written this way. And they're written this way because in the ancient world, what do you not have? You don't have, you don't have books. So ancient writers would use devices like this to help people memorize, to give structure to their arguments. Very, very common. And that's what Paul's using. And that's one of the reasons we're going to deal with such a wealth of of Paul's writing this morning. So he starts off, uh, if you have your Bibles, in the first chapter of Philippians, verse 27. It will also be up here on the screens. And he starts out this way. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again and only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. So his first argument is based on being steadfast in the face of oppression. And you hear that in his language, standing together, fighting for the good news. That's his A argument in the chiastic structure. But there's something really, really subtle going on in here as well, because Paul uses, in this very first phrase, he uses in English the phrase, citizen of what? It's not a rhetorical question. Citizen of heaven. And in that phrase, Paul is kind of uh, beginning to draw this, this argument out on another level, because if you remember when we talked about the intro to Philippians, the Philippians are citizens of what empire? Rome. So, uh, and that is not an idle phrase that Paul uses. It's not a throwaway comment where he says, hey, you're a citizen of heaven, remember? No, no, no. It's much more subversive than that. Paul uses this word 
Uh, let, let's go ahead and put the, the first word up, Morris. It's the word polyteuma. I'm not going to ask you to say that because for some reason it makes people snicker. But, um, but this is the word that encapsulated what it meant to be a Roman citizen. You can see uh, where we might get the word politics from it. But this word told a Roman citizen, this is what's expected of you. It's not just a label you put on. I'm a citizen of Rome. This word encapsulates not just the label that you put on yourself, but the behaviors that typify a Roman citizen. The beliefs that you claim as a Roman citizen. So it's not enough to just label yourself a Roman citizen. If you are going to uh, sort of own this word, you better behave like a Roman citizen. And right off the bat, Paul says, hey, uh, I know that you're a citizen of Rome. This is kind of the paraphrase of what he's saying. I know you're a citizen of Rome and you have to behave a certain way, but guess what? You are a citizen also of heaven. Not heaven in in a far off sense, but heaven in a sense of like you belong to another kingdom. So he is saying, By using this word, hey, remember those things that you're supposed to do and be and say as a Roman citizen? Uh, You have to do and be and say those things as a citizen of heaven as well. And you have a king as well in heaven that demands things from you. It's almost as if he's saying um, the, the church at Philippi, Philippi was a Roman colony. And we talked about how, as a colony, they were expected to bring a little bit of Rome to Greece. Like when you walked into Philippi, you were supposed to be able to say, I feel like I'm in Rome. It's a Roman government. It's Roman customs. Same way that this place started as an English colony. This feels like England. English government. Paul's saying, when people walk into your church, it's not just a Roman colony. It's a heavenly colony. So when people encounter you, they need to see, this is like heavenly government. This is like God's customs. This is something more than just being a Roman citizen. He moves on to his second sort of argument. The B argument in the chiastic structure is all based on his appeal to them as friends and as as common life in Christ. So he picks up this part of the argument in the first verse of chapter two. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? And what he's done here, if you notice it in the very first verse, he's referenced the entire Trinity. Is there any encouragement from belonging to who? any fellowship together in the and in the first century for a jewish mind traditionally love flowed from god the father so paul right off the bat in verse 1 of chapter 2 says all of these things they flow from this from god the son and the holy spirit not from your actions not from trying very hard this comes from the power of god then make me truly happy. And this is, the, this is where he's basing his argument on their friendship. Make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, working together with one mind, one purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, 
thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. And he ends this way. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Okay, which brings us to the center of the, of the chiasmus, which brings us to the heart of it all. And he, he starts it off with this phrase, you must have the same attitude of Christ, which uh, is two things. Um, it's, it's not a suggestion. Hey, maybe if you think you're up to it, you should have the same attitude that Jesus had. Uh, if you wake up and it's a good day, maybe you should have the same attitude that Christ Jesus said. Does he say that? No. You must have it. But here's the thing. What's even more mind-blowing to me is that if Paul says you have to have it, that means somehow he expects that it's possible. I mean, and do you ever pause and just think about that? Like if, if Paul says you have to have it, somehow he expects that we can somehow pull this off. And I know that you know, like even based on what Pastor Dan was talking about last week in the word clouds, I don't even know if, you know, if I have the, 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 the mouth that, that Jesus would, would want to experience, much less his mind. But Paul expects that it's possible. And then he spends the next sort of five verses uh, with the how. And the next five verses um, are some of the most amazing, rich lovely, dense passages in all of the New Testament. It was written either as a poem or a song, which is why it might look different in your Bibles. Like it's written as a poem. It's not just as a paragraph. Uh, We're not sure if Paul wrote this or if he appropriated it from somebody else. But what we basically know is that this was some kind of liturgical, poetic teaching device in the early church. Because poetry is easier to memorize than than just straight text. So the early church would kind of use these lines to help people realize this is what we believe about Jesus. And it is um, life-giving and life-changing. So he says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And then he says this. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. And it just struck me uh, this morning that I I feel so ridiculous up here trying to teach this stuff because it's all just right there, isn't it? He did not think of equality with God, but he took on the position of a slave, which is the same word that Paul starts the letter off with, a slave of Jesus, because Jesus was a slave. But at the same time, there is something going on under the surface that makes this even more um, mind-blowing to me. And I want to start off basically um, by drawing your attention to to a a phrase. Uh, He says he took on... uh, the appearance when he appeared in human form. And he actually uses that word form earlier in the passage, but, but the, NIV, uh, the NLT doesn't use it. 
but it actually appears in verse 6 in the Greek. Though he was in the form of God, blah, 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 he appeared in the form of a human. And he uses the same word there, the same Greek word there, and it's a word uh, called morphe. Morphe is, is a word that describes what something is. There's two Greek words to basically use the same, to get, get at the same concept. There's morphe, which Paul uses. There's also the word schema. Schema, both of these words mean form. Schema means kind of more of the external qualities of something. So the schema of this guitar is red. It's uh, circular. It's, um, you know, I I mean, I don't know. I could just go, go on and on and on about it. It's got some nicks. It's got some dings in it. But the schema of something can change. I have other guitars. I have an orange one right there. Sarah's got a brown one. This is the schema of something. It can change. It can be different. Morphe is the word that Paul uses. Morphe is the word of something that makes something essentially it. So that if you took it away, it would no longer cease to be that thing. I guess for a guitar, if you took the strings away from a guitar, it wouldn't really wouldn't be a, a guitar anymore. It would be like more like a big baseball bat, maybe. Uh, if you change the morphe of something, it no longer is that thing. Does he understand here? So Paul says, right off the bat, Jesus was the morphe of God. He is the essential element of God. The thing that God can no longer be, if, if, if that changes, it's no longer God. But Jesus was the very morphe of God. And then he became the very morphe of a human. The essential element of of what it means to be human. All right, now hold those things there. Because Paul uses this other word that he, that he brings in called harpagmon. And harpagmon is a really difficult word. All I can tell you about it is that like, translators have been struggling over this word for centuries. Because it's very, very complicated uh, in the way Paul uses it. It can mean a robbery. It's, a, it's sort of a violent word. It can mean like taking something by force. But what uh, generally they think it means in this context is that means um, either exploiting or grasping or seizing. So Paul introduces this concept of grasping or seizing in between morphe. Now, without boring you anymore, anymore about, about the actual uh, Greek What Paul is basically saying is that because Jesus was the essential element of God, he released every right and every authority of being God and then somehow didn't cease. He wasn't God any less because of that. He remained fully God even as he went to the cross that dying on the cross somehow didn't make him less God, it made him fully demonstrative of who God is. So the God that we serve, Paul says, does not grasp, 
does not seize, does not exploit his own nature. But because he's God, he says, this is who I am. I give it up. I release it. I'm the sovereign creator of the world. I release it to become a slave to my friends and to the whole world. So Paul introduces these concepts that somehow that when Jesus goes to the cross, he did not stop being God in the form of a servant, but actually showed more fully exactly what it meant to be God. And then he goes on, because there's another part of the, there's another half of this passage. Therefore, Paul writes, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Paul right here is referencing an Old Testament scripture that brings more to light. He's talking about a passage of scripture out of the book of Isaiah, which is uh, kind of a little bit after Psalms, just before Jeremiah. And what's going on in this passage of scripture that Paul is referencing is that God is kind of going through Uh, going through kind of who he is in relation to the other gods of the world. And he's basically going through and said, let me tell you who I am. Let me tell you how powerful I am. And it's one of these times that I just love because God just kind of steps up to the plate and goes like, no, no, okay, like, let me just cut through all of everything and clear the air. And over and over in in this passage, in this chapter, is this phrase where God says, there is no other God. I'm God, there is no other. I'm God, there is no other. I'm God, there is no other. I'm gonna read just a few verses of it. God says, consult together, all you people, and argue your case. Get together and decide what to say. God's almost mocking, mocking people here. Who made all these things known so long ago? What idol ever told you they would happen? Was it not I? the Lord, for there is no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There's none but me. Let all the world look to me for, what's the text say? Salvation. For I am God. There is no other. Now here it comes. I have sworn by my own name. I have spoken the truth. I will never go back on my word. Every knee will bend to me. Does this sound familiar? And every tongue will confess allegiance to me. So Paul's done two things here. The first thing he's done is he says, is he said, hey, um, every knee is going to bow to the name of Jesus. Which was mind-blowing because God, to a first century Jew, God doesn't share power. God is God. And to the Jews, no knee bows except to Yahweh, God. But Paul says, ah, now... Now, the knees will bow because somehow Jesus is equally God. He's the morphe of God, the very essence of God. 
But furthermore, there's another play going on here because the Philippians, again, are members of the Roman Empire. And you know what has happened in the Roman Empire right now is that the emperor has declared himself a god. And so the Philippians, because they were Roman citizens, they would be expected to worship this god. And what Paul is basically saying here is like, hey, remember that time when God says, I'm exalted over all the other idols and all the other gods in the world, uh, even over the emperor, even over the emperor. Every idol in the world, every god in the world, there is a sovereign god over him, and now his name is Jesus, and he looks like a servant who dies on a cross. And this would have been so subversive and so revolutionary to the Philippians. You mean we, we're not supposed to, to, to worship the emperor? Nope. You got a higher allegiance, Paul says. You have a higher allegiance than any citizenship you claim. And that speaks now to us. And I think as we seek to live out the purposes of God, we need to remember that no matter what we are a citizen of of earth, we are a member of the colony of heaven with a God, with a leader who looks like somebody who's died on a cross. But Paul's not done. He's got more. He always does. He enters the second half of his chiastic structure. So he's introduced an A argument, the B argument, the C, the heart of it all. And now he's moving out to the outer ring. So we're back to the B argument, which is the argument, the appeal based on hey, remember how good of friends we are. Remember, remember this life together that we have in Jesus. Dear friends, dear beloved, is another way of saying it. You always followed my instructions when I was with you. Now that I'm away, it's even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and in fear. For God is working in you, giving you the, the desire and the power to do what pleases him, to begin with the end, Paul says, it's God working in you. It's God working in you, uh, Philippians. And remember, this God has opened up the kingdom. You are saved. You are members of God's colony. Okay, but now get on with it. Now get on with it. Get on with being the people of God. Get on with being the colony of heaven, essentially is what he's saying. And then the last part of his argument he returns to this, this idea of being steadfast in the, in, the, in the face of oppression. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life, he goes on, talking about their faithful service. And the language there is, is laden with the idea of like, hey, there's, there's oppression out there. If you refuse to, to worship the emperor, if you refuse to live like a Roman, you may encounter this stuff. Stand together, hold it together, be together. But as usual, there is another level going on here. And I just want to kind of close with this idea because Paul, again, is using the Old Testament in kind of a revolutionary way. He says, ah, you know, shine like stars in the face of a, of a society that is crooked and perverse. 
And, and to me, sometimes I read those words, and I've always been like, they kind of come out of nowhere. Well, Paul's like, yeah, yeah, remember all this stuff? Like, oh, remember, it's a crooked and perverse generation. Arr! Remember the world out there? Arr! They're crooked, they're perverse. And it's like, wow, where did that come from? And the fact of the matter is, the world is often dark, isn't it? Sometimes it is crooked, isn't it? Well, Paul's got something else in mind. He's actually quoting another Old Testament book there, the book of Daniel which culturally was very significant for the Jews in the first century. It was significant because the book of Daniel is all about God's people living out God's purposes in the face of persecution from the pagans. This is what's going on in first century uh, Jewish life. They are being persecuted by Rome. God, why are these pagans persecuting us? They look to the scriptures for support. They see Daniel, who writes all about what it's like to be God's people in the face of persecution. In chapter 12 of the, of the book of Daniel, the writer writes this. Many of those whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting disgrace. This is the resurrection. There's always a, already a hope of the resurrection in the book of Daniel. Next slide. Those who are wise will shine as bright as the sky. Here it is. And those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever. Paul writes again, shine like stars in a universe full of a crooked and perverse people. Daniel writes, you need to shine so that you can lead people to righteousness. So is the culture sometimes crooked and perverse? Absolutely. But what Paul is hinting at here is saying, you need to lead people to righteousness. And as you do that, you will shine like the stars forever. And furthermore, because Daniel was written in the face of persecution, Paul is saying persecutions may come. Hard times may come. You don't worship the emperor in Rome. You may be asking for trouble. It may be starting already. But Paul says, shine. Lead people to righteousness. So to kind of take a step back and like, where does this, where does this leave us? Um, let's go ahead and put the picture of, of the cross up. This is my favorite picture of, of, of the cross. It feels weird to say favorite picture, but it's something that speaks very powerfully to me. It has for years. And I keep this, uh, I keep a picture of this actually in my Bible. And uh, a couple months ago, I, I actually taped it to the stage here so that it's always in my mind. Because this is what I believe Paul's writing about. This concept of, of the very definition of God means that God gives up his rights to be sovereign and to end up like this, serving. Means that whatever rights I have, whatever authority I have, wherever I think I'm entitled to something, I go, hmm, ah, but, but the God I follow says, you have to have my mind. You have to have my mind that says, 
I give it up. I give it up. Because servanthood, slavery is the way I do things. There was a passage of one of my favorite authors, and he just kind of puts it this way. He said, you know, sometimes we argue about stuff, and we argue, and you know what God says? You know, we, oh, well, this doctrine is right. This doctrine is wrong. God says, but the body of my son is broken. Oh, but, but God, I was wrong. I, I, I want to make sure, I want to get my, I want to get what I'm owed. And God says, ah, but the body of my son is broken. This is what it means to be God. I want our churches to be like this. You know, we, to return to this, you know, we have a goal. Paul has a goal. Paul wants results from his churches. And you know what he says? Not 10,000 hours. Not coercion. Not manipulation. Paul says, this, this is the way you accomplish the results The cross is not just a way to get us into heaven. It's our way of life. And Paul is saying, this is what it means. So to return to our uh, two questions that we started this series with as Sarah comes up, what does it mean to live in community, we ask? And what does it mean to be a distinct type of community? Oh, it means you have to seek to serve. Where are you grasping in your life? Where are you seizing your rights? Because it's right there that Paul says, and God says, if you want to be like me, you have to lay those things down. Because you are a member of another colony, another, uh, another culture, another empire. And that ruler died on a cross. No matter what allegiance we carry around with us, we have a higher one. And his name is Jesus. And that's what he looks like.